Welcome to the Genre Wars Book Podcast, which exists to help you read wider and find great new books where you didn't expect them. We chat about the best stories from people's favorite genres with the authors who write them. I'm your host, Tim Hawken, and today I'll be talking psychological thrillers with J.P. Pomare. J.P. is the award-winning author of best-selling novels, I Am Evie, In the Clearing, and Tell Me Lies, with his latest book, The Last Guests, coming out this week. Much like Farlap, Australians have claimed JP as our own because he's successful, but really, he's just another bloody talented Kiwi that grew up on a horse racing farm. JP, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. That's quite an intro. (laughs) (laughs) So you you did actually grow up on a horse racing farm in in kind of small town New Zealand, Um, and now you're in Australia dominating the Melbourne literati scene. How'd that all come about? Did you just come over for the cup one year and, and never go back? No, no. Look, I, um, I, I actually left home when I was quite young, probably I was 15, but I stayed in my hometown uh, and I stayed at school. So I wasn't like, you know, didn't go join the workforce or anything. Um, and so, yeah, I, I sort of, wasn't like estranged from my family, but um, yeah, it was wasn't really catching up uh, with my dad that much. I'd see him occasionally, but I was living out of home. And when I finished school, I moved to Wellington and I studied for a little bit down there. And then um, it, it just sort of started off as a bit of a gap year. I, I suppose I came to Melbourne um, and instantly fell in love with the place. Um, yeah, there just seemed to be this kind of potential here. I don't, I don't know if there's any other way of putting it um, that are just that just doesn't seem to exist. Certainly not on the same scale in New Zealand. Um, and I hadn't lived in Auckland, which would be comparable in terms of it's it's much smaller, but would be closer. Um, I was living in Wellington, which is you know a big small town. Really, mm. um, it's I say that it's a city, but it feels it's got that kind of small town feel. You always, you just bump into people you know everywhere and. Um, you know, the, the hot, everything sort of shuts, you know, as, as is the case in small towns, whereas Melbourne had that, that, when I say endless kind of potential, you could do anything whenever you wanted. Um, and, you know, having traveled to places like New York, you see that even more so. Um, but I was attracted to that, um, as a insomniac who is always looking for things to do. And, um, you know, I was attracted to that as a 19 year old who, um, who just had itchy feet and wanted to wanted to always be out of the house and um, so then then when I arrived in Melbourne I just it just worked I liked it I was working here um, and I think what happened and this happens at some stage for everyone I think but not everyone actually but most people would say you, um, you your entire life sort of exists within a context of your school friends or your friends at home so everything you do is kind of refracted through that kind of prism of um you know what everyone else is doing what of this kind of ideal version of you and and what you present to your school friends especially if you haven't seen them in a while and your self-concept is still so sort of embedded with um you know these ideals you had about yourself at school and 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 your friends and then at some stage you kind of realize that you're not that person anymore and you're not, they're not really your friends anymore and you've got this whole new life. And um, when that happened, I realized Melbourne was home. It was always like, I was always had one eye on New Zealand. I was always looking back 
and it was and it's easy with Facebook and email and that sort of thing. I was always in communication and um, in the early days of social media, you you were representing a, a life that was slightly better than your own. Um, and that was because no one else was really seeing what I was doing overseas. None of my closest friends were really seeing what I was up to in Melbourne. You know, that was so much easier. And, um, yeah, but but like I said, there came a point, and I think this happens with everyone, where you kind of leave that old version of yourself behind, leave those friends and that life behind. You stop comparing your life to theirs and whatever. And then that's when I think um, I was like, Melbourne's my home. I don't know if I'll ever go back, if, if I'll ever move back to New Zealand. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't the Melbourne Cup, and it wasn't even the writing scene, really. It was just... Um, it just jailed. It was just a place I like. Yeah. And so you talk about that self-concept and changing. Is that something that also changed? Like, was that a point where you decided, you you know what, I, I want to be a writer? Or was that something that you have carried across um, from home in New Zealand and, and something that's been kind of constant? Like, how did you decide you wanted to be a writer and, and what were your influences in, in that direction? Um. Well, oddly enough, I would say, you, you know, I, I it's just lucky that Melbourne was such a um, a place that cultivated this kind of artistic community and, and offered such great support for artists and writers and that sort of thing. Because it could have just been, it could have as easily been um, Brisbane, which again, Brisbane, you know, I wouldn't complain about the writing scene and support up there, but um, I just so happened to land in the kind of cultural hub of Australia, you know, in terms of sports and arts, um, which, you know, is something like I fell in love with even footy in my first year, I think here, I thought it was quite, you know, rugby games in New Zealand don't really pack stadiums as odd as that might sound because the cities are too small. Whereas in Melbourne, you had a packed MCG every week. And, um, and so stuff like that, you know, like Melbourne, when I, when I arrived, um, I wasn't necessarily inspired to write and I didn't realise how lucky I was and how lucky I would be in the future to um, to kind of engage this arts community. Um, so, you know, I was writing a bit, but I, but I hadn't fully, I, I didn't know how to approach the, the kids that were writing short stories and getting shortlisted for all the, for all the prizes and mm. getting in all the mags. I, I didn't really know how to approach that and that was what I considered to be entering uh, the literary scene. Whereas, really, how you enter the literary scene is one to get better at writing, but two, um, via courses and book launches and stuff like that. It's not necessarily getting your name in amongst um, you know these these other names. And at the time, it was uh, it was people like. Um, I think everyone remembers um, Jennifer Down being shortlisted or winning every single short story prize, and everyone was just as envious as I was, I'm sure. Um, but it wasn't about getting my name in the same publications as people like Jennifer Down, who are just such amazing literary writers. It was more about, you know, how I broke into and met other writers in Melbourne and sort of got involved in that community was through um, just just writing courses and and work daily, you know just day length workshops and stuff like that. Um, I was always entering short story competitions. I was always pretty keen to write, but it was always a pipe dream. I never really let myself believe it. Um, and, and, and still I kind of 
uh, I, I, I tend to bring my own work down um, and I tend to, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm pretty hard on myself, I think, and still pretty hard on my do, work. Do you feel like that's uh, kind of a Kiwi Aussie thing, like to, to sort of be humble? Do you mean Kiwi like, Aussie as in both countries? Like both countries, like bringing, bringing yeah. yourself down so, you know, you don't get t- cut down by by anyone else but you know it's yeah i i think it's also i've seen what the literary scene can do to people um i've seen how how mean and how nasty and how competitive people can be when there's limited resources um and that's definitely the case in in the literary scene less so when you're talking genre i think because there's uh because there's a bigger market for it um it's it's i mean i'd say literary fiction is much more crucial to a thriving um you know writing scene because that's what makes writers good is reading and understanding appreciating literary work um but what funds so much of um you know what funds so many literary books in australia is is things like crime you know crime romance and stuff like that so um so for me i've always felt because of how competitive is and because of how limited the resources are for the literary scene um and and i've seen how nasty people can sort of be about it not to me um because i'm not really in that that wheelhouse so much but um yeah i i just feel like um you know when you're viewing this sort of as an outsider which is how i've always felt over here um you don't want like you, you want to get in. I think like you, you hit the nail on the head. You want to get in before anyone else. And so, I will say to my literary friends, "Oh, you'll you'll hate this. Don't worry. Don't read my book. You'll hate it and <laughs> stuff like that." Um, and it might be. It's probably true. You know, it might be true for for lots of um, authors. I'm good friends of like Jock Sarong and Robbie Arnott. I I, I I say that to every book, and they go, "What are you talking about? I like I loved it. It was great, or whatever." Um, and whether or not that's true, you know, maybe they're just being nice, but. I think it's just that thing where I'm giving people and I'm giving them permission to not like it because um, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want that uncomfortable thing where you, someone says, Oh, I loved your book. I really liked it. And, and but at the same time you're thinking, well, did you really, or are we just sort of mates, you know? So I sort of get in there first and say, look, you're going to hate it. I don't mind if you do hate it. Um, and that, yeah, <laughs> that sort of makes it, makes it a bit more comfortable, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's just, yeah, it is a New Zealand Australian thing, but I think it's much more New Zealand thing to um, to care less if, if people do hate it as well. I think everyone always cares, but I think because the expectation for New Zealand artists, the bar is so low that if you do achieve any measure of success outside of New Zealand, um, it's it's so surprising and. Um, you know, everyone gets behind, really gets behind you. But because we've got this mentality that, you know, we're just this tiny little country and we do nothing, then we're always sort of, yeah, I guess, uh, what's the word? Um, I guess we're sort of our, our, our own critics first. And obviously once you become successful, then you're just an Australian instead, like uh, Russell yeah, that's right. and everyone else. <laughs> Oh no, he's you guys can have him. He's oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that guy. Okay, 
like if you if you turn if you turn your back on New Zealand, you you're not worthy of being a New Zealander anymore. That's that's sort of the view, you know. Like if you if you want to be Australian, then we don't want you. That's the sort. Of, and um, so Russell Crowe got that treatment. But um, people love people like Sonny Bill and stuff who who kind of like you know go back. Um, there are a few ones that are like borderline. I think the Finn brothers. No. Who's a crowded house guy? I think he's sort of like, he's pretty, he, you know, he's, he's sort of on the, people don't mind him, mm. but Russell Crowe people hate. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, so back to, back to, back to you. Um, the new book is out. Um, and I mentioned while we we're kind of off air that I finished it last night and I have to say it's terrifying <laughs> and I'm, probably never going to stay in an airbnb again um i kind of i read on the the press release that your publicist kindly sent that you've actually been an airbnb host like how much how much goes into how much of that experience went into this book um are you are you were you planting cameras in rooms spoiler alert alert <laughs> Uh, well, officially, no. Um, you know, I'll, I'll never caught doing that, that's for sure. Um, well, yeah, so much of it goes into it, but it's just, uh, this was one of those write what you know kind of ideas that I loved, you know, because um, because people say write what you know, and usually if I were to do that, the book would be, the book would be just shit, Um <laughs> Because what do I know? You know, like I, I live in a house like everyone else. I, you know, I've got a family. I'm pretty normal. I don't kill people. Uh, you know, I don't. There's, there's nothing that exciting about my life. Yeah, you don't so, live in a um, spaceship. No, no, that, that's right. So it's sort of like this odd thing where, um, you know, it was something I knew a lot about that was pretty interesting to people. I think people are fascinated at the moment, certainly with the gig economy and, and uh well one like user generated content so like um even just like instagram and stuff like that but reviews and how that works and the interactions between reviewer and and reviewee and or or who's being what's being reviewed so that was kind of interesting as well like that dynamic on airbnb hosting you know like you want to you want these five-star reviews for your property because then more people book it and so you bend over backwards for these people and but they also want five star reviews so you kind of both have this real false you know niceness and, and you're going above and beyond as much as you can and and then there's also the sort of professional side of it as well like some people this is their sole income now like they own rental rental properties which are just purely on um you know these short-term holiday leasing websites and so i just i just thought what's what what are we doing? You know, we're opening ourselves up so much on this. There's so much potential for criminal activity, and indeed, it happens. People have big parties. Uh, there's rumours, although you know these seem to be um, confirmed cases of people renting Airbnb properties for like a month and using them to manufacture drugs, um, and, and like rumours of uh, swingers parties and rumors of people shooting adult films and all sorts of stuff that could happen. And so we always thought, you know, what wonder what's happened in our places. What, what would be the most exciting thing that's happened in our uh we we had a apartment um in the city which we 
we sold because we were living in and whenever we went away, we'd Airbnb it. But we've also got a tiny little riders retreat in rural Victoria, um, which we, we still Airbnb, um, although we'll see how long that lasts after the book comes out. Um, but, but, you know, it was just finding things as well, finding things people had left. One time there was just candle wax in a circle on the floor. Um, and, and just, you know, that, that's where stories begin for me is, uh, is unanswered questions. You know, you, you always want to know, oh, where the hell are my car keys that I lost five years ago? Where did they end up? You know, if there was a machine that could answer these questions and just satisfy our curiosity, we'd, we wouldn't be able to make any new stories because that's where, what stories are sort of born of for me is the unknown, you know, just, aren't, just trying to find answers to things that we can't answer ourselves. And so I was thinking, you know, what could have happened here? What could people have done? I thought, imagine if someone came to our place and installed cameras. What would, you know, one, why would they want to do that? And two, and the motivations, there's, you know, countless motivations there. But two, um, how would they do it? You know, how would they go about doing it in a way where we wouldn't notice and future guests and the cleaners and stuff wouldn't notice? And... Um, and so that was writing what I knew in a sense, like I, I because we'd host, I knew what it was like to interact with guests. I knew how frequently cleaners go through and how the money works and so on and so forth. Um, but the other thing was there was some research because of the element of installing cameras in Airbnbs. Would there be a market for whatever material was generated by those cameras? Would it be streaming or would it be sale of um, footage? And um, and, you know, I, I interviewed someone who um, informed policy in the UK, now that works uh, in policy in, in Australia, but um, basically his job was to uh, communicate between um, investigative bodies and, and police and, and um, a politician he worked with trying to lobby for, you know, um, laws and changes to laws to help police investigate. Uh, pedophile rings and how to break up child exploitation, you know, rings. And and um, so it's so really horrible, really, you know, like they are investigating, in my view, the the worst um, people on the planet. Like you're mm. like, I can't think of think anything worse than what, what they do to some of these children. And, um, you know, and, and also it's interesting talking about um, how the psychology or psychological landscape of, these investigators change, how long they can do it for and the forced sabbaticals and that sort of thing. Um, there's interesting things about how there's ethical questions about whether they can use uh, photos of children to catfish um, potential pedophiles and stuff like that. And, and, of course, they can't, so they have to find models that look, you know, seven or eight years old. And and, and so we're just sort of I, – I, I always have this kind of dark fascination with – um, with this and I hate and I really hate these people and I want to understand them um, but we were talking you know the point of the conversation was to understand the infrastructure and the anonymity of these networks and how they kind of actually just function you know how, how does money how does money change hands in these rings um, what parts of the world you know what sort of brow you know tall browsers in the dark web and and how they communicate and how, how they find new members and stuff like that. And I was thinking about how that all worked. And so, so much of the writing what you know was the Airbnb stuff, but also the research for this book was really fun. And that when I say fun, it was horrible, really. But 
but um, so interesting. And I got to meet and speak with some really interesting people. But he, uh, Jimmy, was, yeah, was was enormously helpful. We had a really long conversation and a bit of correspondence. Um, but one thing he said that struck me was this. I said to him, you know, is this possible? Would this happen? And he said to me, in some form, I, I guarantee you this is happening. Uh, in some form, there's definitely a market for it because there's, endless voyeurs on the internet you know some would argue where most people are voyeurs to some extent but he said there's there's a market for it um it's low risk because you know police are tied up with bigger fish this is pretty harmless uh and he said that it would absolutely it would absolutely exist in some form um you know a network of voyeurs sharing footage from you know rental properties Mm. um and i thought i thought this was a really novel cool idea but it was it was kind of satisfying to know that um, it, it's not pure fantasy. As horrible as it is, it's much more harmless than, you know, so much else that's um, sold via these networks. So, you know, it, for me it was, um, yeah, it was, it was quite fun to run that I, I could access something that seems invented and, and probably is, although is also entirely conceivable and so much of the feedback has been, about you know how realistic that element of the story is i mean it's interesting because it does it really plays on probably exist well definitely existing fears that people have when they stay or they rent out their own place and the those fears are becoming so much more common because everyone's or not everyone but a lot of people stay at airbnbs and so it's like you're playing on this almost new fear in a way that hadn't been around before that, maybe maybe with hotels and things, but it seems a lot more intimate when it's somebody's home and it just seems to hit home a lot harder for some reason. Yeah. And I think the other thing is the point of access, you know, how the ease of access, I should say, is, um, is the thing of this, like for you to be a voyeur, and own a motel, let's say, which, you know, has happened. There's a few famous cases of, of um, Bates Motel-esque uh, setups where, you know, there's a there's a peephole in the wall. Um, there's a pretty famous case in the States of a motel owner who had this network sort of above the rooms and he claims to have, you know, witnessed a murder in one of his rooms and this sort of thing. Um, whether or not that's just fantasy, you know, um, remains to be seen, but there is there are a few famous historical examples of um, commercial uh, properties being used by the owner to spy on people, often making you know having sex or going having a shower or whatever. Like he's just there's just the the voyeur just wants to um, view you know the the private lives of others and. How, in whatever form that takes. Um, and so this has been around for years, but the, uh, you know, the ease of access in terms of anyone, you know, we, we've gone from probably, I don't, I, don't, I don't know the numbers, but there's probably 10 times as many properties you can stay at now because mm-hmm. of uh, things like Airbnb, right? So uh, Airbnb is, is just this monster. Um, and instead of, one hotel having a hundred rooms and having a manager and security and so much oversight. We those hundred rooms are now in a hundred different houses with hundred different people and, and that level of um, you know how how 
thinly spread that is. Mm, how do you increase Yeah, but it, yeah, how do you police it? But also, it just greatly increases the chances that one of those 100 people could put cameras in their rooms, and it's mm. happening, you know. Um, it, when I was writing this, uh, or going through edits, a New Zealand family, this was probably two years ago now, was staying in the UK, and the dad and the family was just savvy enough to check what other devices were on the Wi-Fi and noticed a whole bunch of these random devices and realized and figured out they were cameras and he tapped into the camera network and then pulled up a live footage of his family, you know, on his phone. Wow. Um, and they found the camera and informed the police. Um, there, was one, there was another one in Berlin that they found cameras in Airbnb and in the States. And I think the point of difference here is these were, in the end, it turns out, I'm pretty sure they were all installed by the owners of the um, properties with their list on Airbnb or whatever. And so that's the point of difference, I think. With my story, um, I'm thinking the risk is so much higher on the homeowner, you know, because uh, you you can go to jail for this, of course. It's... um, it's a, it's a gross invasion of, um, you know, people's privacy. And not only that, you're going to probably lose your equipment because it would start a criminal investigation and, and so on and so forth. Whereas if you do it to someone else's Airbnb, if you're careful enough and you're, you are um, clever enough to place your equipment in a way where it won't be discovered and then you can go back and collect your equipment later, uh, my, my thoughts around this was, if the cameras are discovered, it's much less traceable. The, the owners would be investigated first, um, and then it's anyone's guess really who's installed them, unless they were found immediately after. If they'd been there for months, you know, there'd be so many guests who had gone through that property that it'd be pretty hard to narrow down. And then, of course, you could. It's when you look at how Airbnb profiles are made, um, you need one form of ID normally, and um, and a, and a credit card. And so ID in certain countries is much easier to attain than, than Australia, of course. You know that you can um, you can pay someone in Bolivia for their ID and use that to start this profile. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can, you, there's ways to, of um, having debit cards that aren't actually attached to your name. So you can remain pretty anonymous still as much as Airbnb would lead you uh, to believe, you know, or... or I say Airbnb for legal reasons. I have to say, uh, uh, generally, um, short stay holiday accommodation <laughs> uh, websites. Um, you know, as much as they would lead you to believe it's really secure because they take a deposit and so on and so forth, that's fine for damages to the property. You know, that's pretty safe. But in terms of like whether you, like how much you know about the people who are staying there, um, you don't really know anything. You just have to go by previous reviews, and if People are perfectly fine guests, but they happen to install hidden cameras. That they'd still get five star reviews. Like if you left the place pretty tidy, good at communicating, checked out on time, you know, if you tick all the boxes, you would have this great track record of staying in all these Airbnbs, all these properties without any um, any hiccups. Which means, you know, you no one would be suspicious of that. We weren't suspicious of any of the people who stayed at our place, and some of them were like pretty shocking really like you know um so it's um it's a funny thing you know because it's when we say when i say it's really conceivable 
I wouldn't do this, but I think I could. I, mm. You know, I, I, I'm not about to do it, but it wouldn't be difficult. Yeah, and I, I should say to to people listening that um, this isn't so much a spoiler about the plot of the book. This all this a lot of this stuff unfolds in the first couple of chapters. So, if anyone's sort of cringing, going, "No, I want I want the surprise," don't worry. There's plenty of plenty of questions and things that crop up in the in the start of the book, um, and. Josh, I have to say that when you mentioned earlier that, you know, the the ring of candle wax and the questions that pop up are what, what stories are created for you, it seems like something you do quite well um, is seed these questions that don't get answered until much later. And that's what keeps you turning the page to find out, like, what's what's going to happen? What's the answer to that little, little kind of question that's been planted? Um, do you think that's – is that – do you think that that is a common feature of good thrillers in general? Do you think that's a signature of your writing? Like how would you sit that um, technique in, in a genre space? Yeah, I think, I think, um, I think plotless novels aside, you know, cause that's a whole other thing. I think most good fiction, um, there's always one major dramatic question um, that's running through the entirety entirety of the text, but I think there's also a series of smaller um, questions that are asked throughout. So what what I mean by that, you know, um, uh, I don't know what's a, what's a famous book. What's a good example here? Uh, let's say I can't even remember a book that I read recently with a plot. Uh, a famous book, let's say, um, you know, The Lord of the Rings, the the entire series, you, if you were to refine that to a single dramatic question, it would be, I suppose, will, um, will you know, good conquer evil? Will, will he reach the mountain, I forget what it's called, and um, destroy the ring? And so that's that's the major dramatic question, right? That's, that's when you're watching all those movies, that's, what you know ultimately will be answered and then it, the, the plot will be resolved. But if we're looking at those films and books in particular, um, you know, throughout the series, in each book you will find a major dramatic question and each scene you'll find one play out. And so in my views, these, in my view, the, these questions are um, building blocks, um, some people call them story loops, I suppose. Um, but these questions are a building blocks for plot. And um, the bigger and more urgent the question, the more tense the narrative is. Because, you know, um, if, if a question is, um, will someone survive this, you know, that's a big kind of urgent, scary thing that makes the, the plot and that point in the story really tense and urgent. Um, and so I think when we ask questions, I think when authors ask question, big questions um, early on, whether it's intuitive or not, because people will do this deliberately um, and consciously, but if it's, if it's when people are writing and they are asking these questions, it's they instinctively know that it's the reader's curiosity most of all that's um, keeping them in the story, even if it's really character-driven. I think it's a curiosity about, um, you know, what's how these characters are going to get through this, what's going to play out with these characters. 
you know, you do care about the characters and you want to just be in the story because of them, but also I think, as I said, instinctively, intuitively, whatever you, however you want to put it, um, good writers understand that there must be these questions that remain open and when they're, they're closed and when they're answered, there's slack in the tension and they need to ask another one. Mm. Um, and so I don't think it's a particularly, you know, me trait as a writer. I think just savvy thriller writers, and I'm not saying I'm a savvy thrill- thriller writer, but certainly I aspire to be one, um, they understand and appreciate the power of, you know, uh, mystery in terms of asking these questions and, and keeping them them open. And as you pointed out, Tim, I think the first one I ask is, um, who is this person that's mm. doing it? You know, that's installing because it's the very early scene that this is happening. Who is and what? Who's doing this and what could his motivations be? Um, and then you don't really get that answer until, and this isn't a spoiler. You won't know who this is and why they're doing it until the very end of the story mm-hmm. and and so i guess talking about like savvy thriller writers um i'd love to dive in a little bit about distinctions of like what like what's a thriller what how would you term a thriller if someone someone dropped in from the moon and said oh i see this this type of book's called a thriller and it's popular what like what makes it a thriller yeah yeah. Um, uh, well, I mean, I should be able to answer this, um, but uh, I, I, I mean, all I'd say is a thriller, in my view, is one it has to fit in the crime genre in the sense that um, a central motivating factor of the characters is to investigate something. Um. And that's pretty broad and pretty vague. You interpret that how you like. But I think um, I think there's no real clear definition of crime. And the problem, in my view, is crime's growing and we're, we're marketing everything as crime and thrillers and suspense and stuff because we know it sells, but, of course, it just waters down um, those genres and makes these kind of micro-genres and no one really knows what they're buying when they pick up a book because the covers are marketed as thrillers and the titles and then you read it and it's often really literary. Um, and so for, for me, a thriller has to um, concern itself with the investigation of um, a crime or a perceived crime or a sort of wrongdoing. Um, that would be the first thing. And the second thing is there would have to be, um, I mean, you can have really character-driven thrillers and there's this real rise of the literary thriller uh, but for me, it has to be um, reasonably pacey. I think that's the difference between just pure suspense and and an actual thriller. Um, suspense can can kind of um, roll out pretty slowly, and the tension is just the slow kind of like turning, you know, a key on the um, on a guitar. If that's what it's called, the little thing you turn to tune a guitar, just like slowly winding that up until the string snaps. You know that sort of suspense for me. Whereas thriller that will employ things like jump scares, and thriller will have real cliffhangers, and and it's they tend to be much more pacey than um, much much pacier than than just pure suspense. Um, yeah, I think there's a there's yeah. a quote. It's something like a thriller is a mystery in a hurry, or something like that. Um, of, I don't know. Yeah. Who's about, but. I think it is a pacing thing. Um, 
that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Or, or you know, um, a suspense novel is a thriller on Valium or something. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's just a, it's just a matter of um, the story may very well be pretty similar, but it's how um, pacey it is. I think that just that discerns a, a thriller from just a, a novel of suspense or a crime novel. Mm. It's interesting. Like when I when I was kind of reading through how. Um, how the marketing describes your work as a literary thriller um, or a psychological thriller. And just myself was kind of thinking, okay, well, I'm familiar with crime thrillers. How is, how is this different? And just kind of reading through, just kind of taking notes in my own head and going, right, well, normally I would expect a dead body at the very start of a thriller. There isn't one in, in this book. And I believe, I'm pretty sure in Tell Me Lies there isn't one either. Um, like I would just like, would you give any distinctions of that subgenre of literary thriller or psychological thriller versus a crime thriller? Like how, how, and why is are these terms kind of coming about? So, so the uh, the question was, sorry, it's um, this is you know, I, I, I think I think there's this thing where. Um, the body on, a, on the first page is um, it did become a bit of a trope because it's it's a shortcut, you know, um, mm. for writers. You don't have to have the build up to the crime. There's the crime, and then it concerns itself with the investigation of the crime, um, and and it's a bit of a whodunit setup, of course. Um, the, I th- I'd say like the rise of the literary thriller. Um, or even just psychological thriller, which psychological thrillers tend to be more literary, and and the thrillers in that they're pacey, but the psychological element, in my view, means they are much more concerned with the interior world of the characters, um, and that's also happens to be the case for literary novels as well. You know, literary novels are about interiority and character development, um, and psychological thrillers are thrillers that are much more concerned with the interior lives of the characters as opposed to the exterior. And that's why you see things like, um, you know, such a common um, use of uh, the unreliable narrator. Um, And that's why you see things like journals. And that's why, you know, we are looking at um, paranoia often with the characters as well. You know, are they seeing things? I think of novels like um, Shutter Island, you know, as a mm. classic early example. When I say early, you know, psychological thrillers have been around for a long, long time, but I think the this explosion in popularity in the last sort of 15 to 20 years, um, Shutter Island's early 2000s from memory, you've got um, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which and both those novels are, crime much more detective crime setups um but it turns out they're, they're very psychological as well especially shutter island you know you don't realize you're reading a psychological thriller until you're so uh in the story that you don't want to leave like you don't you don't feel like it's a bait and switch because it's a real detective story setup um but then you have things like girl on the train um which is a little bit later but also gone girl um before I go to sleep or before I close my eyes, I think it's called. Mm. Uh, but but all of these novels really concern themselves with the psychological landscape of their protagonists. The, the, the perspective tends to be from um, often from 
the victim or one of the victims um, of a crime. Um, they, as, as opposed to someone investigating the crime. So, you know, typical crime thrillers in the past have usually been from uh, often a journalist investigating or obviously a detective or a private investigator. Um, and I think psychological thrillers are, are much more so from the perspective of, as I said, the, the victim or someone who is, um, who is uh, at a very um, intimate level involved in the, um, in the crime, so it could be their husband or partner, or they might have been someone who viewed a crime or something like that. Um, and for me, that's much more interesting, I think, because, you know, I care more about the effect on people of crime as opposed to the clever mechanics of the actual solving of the crime. I think it, adds, um, it seems to add tension to me as well, because I think that's a good point that it's the victim versus uh, a journalist or a, a police officer or a detective who who has permission to investigate whereas the victim doesn't necessarily have permission so there's like this added tension where i shouldn't be doing this i shouldn't be looking into it etc etc um it just adds it, it adds that sort of extra psychological element to it just just by yeah, the fact yeah. that you're changing um changing who's doing the investigating well if we think about um earlier psychological thrills even if we look at say anything by Alfred Hitchcock um <clears throat> you know really subverts the kind of uh you know detective crime in a, in a sense because um you, you don't really trust the people whose eyes you're viewing the story through or, or they don't really trust their own perspective so I think of like a classic would be a rear window um you don't even know if a crime's been committed you know, um, that's that's the complete inverse of the body on the first page because you you can't be sure that your character's in the right. You know, you don't you don't know you you sort of root for them in a way, but you can't be certain until late in that movie that um, that the character's doing the right thing or the wrong thing. Um, and another another one of his Strangers on a Train, which of course I think was a Patricia Highsmith novel first i think anyway strangers on the train again is um you know there is a there is a crime there is a murder but the setup is um is fascinating and you're staying with a character who's sort of the victim in a sense in this case um likewise psycho you know <laughs> like if you yeah. look at norman bates that's uh that's because it's so, the, the idea of a psychopath in, in fiction became a real trope after that. Um, and it became just an, a, a shortcut for a character's motivation. Why'd they do it? Oh, they're just a psychopath, right? Um, why are they psychopath? Are oh, they, you know, they, their dad beat them up when they're little or they used to set kittens on fire or something stupid, you know, like it, it was always really tropey. But I think that novel did it really well. It's this really kind of intimate relationship between a mother and her son and there's so much there um and 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 his behavior norman bates behavior is so traceable and and um and so i think as a psychological thriller that worked so well it had everything you know it had the twists it had great characterization everything um but it also you know it worked in that it was a pretty um certainly for the times a reasonably accurate representation of um a psychopath mm. and 
and we don't really get that that much these days you know um the the the, the, the entire story was really original um and that's why i guess it became a trope and a cliche because it was so original it worked so well that everyone thought they could do it as well mm. um but that's that's you know yeah but the, but that's the sort of quintessential psychological thriller you know um that that era i guess it's from you know the sort of early 60s through to kind of the mid 70s then there's so much slasher films and stuff like that but there were so many great even uh was it the third man is that what it's called um which was based on a short story from memory. So, you know, all these novels were, the point of them is the crime is sort of beside the point. So much of it's just about the character's kind of reaction um, and life, you know, trying to contextualise and understand the crime that was so interesting. Um, and, the, and, of course, figuring everything out, which is always fun. That sort of jigsaw element of how everything fits too is always, is, was always pretty interesting. Mm. It's, it's it's satisfying for the reader, I think, to see how it all comes together. And um, it's interesting. I was talking with um, with Chris Hammer about just crime novels, and he's kind of like everyone's so much more sophisticated now that everyone expects a twist. And funnily enough, rather than be satisfied that they guess the twist, they're disappointed that the author hasn't come up with something interesting. And so he now builds in you know, four or five different twists so that at least if they get one or two, there's still a couple of surprises there that are going to be satisfying and interesting for the reader. Yeah. I don't like, you know, I resist the idea that you owe the reader a, a big twist. Although, you know, I seek to write big twists in my, in my work. I think, um, I think you you need to be a better writer if if the reader's there only for the twist at the end, then you need you 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 need to be you know you need to be doing something better with the characters or mm. there needs to be if the only reason readers are reading that particular book is for the twist if they get it if you're banking on the twist being so good and um, you know so devious that if it doesn't land people will hate the book then. That's that's a too big a gamble for for me to take, you know, um, and and some books only work because of the twists, and that's definitely the case. Um, but you know, it's it's just such a, it just seems like everything riding on nailing that, um, yeah, is yeah, it's it's too risky. And I think you know, to some extent, I did what Chris said in in the clearing, and I think that's probably my favorite of all my books is in the clearing um, because there's there's a, some really, really big twists that really, really work and contextualise so much of the story that was probably a little ambiguous before those twists, um, you know, and I think that's what what great twists do is they, um, they're not just there to kind of, you know, throw the reader. They also are there to make sense of so much of what's come before it to yeah. sort of resolve so much of the mystery. Yeah, and so you've mentioned you've mentioned a few titles just during our discussion in the last kind of twenty minutes or so. If if someone hasn't read thrillers before, and say they only read autobiographies or whatever, like what would be one of the first books that you would recommend to them and go, "Hey, this is an absolute classic," or it could be a new book, but this is an absolute ripoff to get you started in in the psychological thriller genre. Um. 
Well, it's 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 a hard one because so many of these books I read so long ago. And one thing Chris touched upon was how savvy, um, you know, how savvy the modern reader is in mm-hmm. terms of they usually there, there are readers who will read a hundred books a year, and all of them are psychological thrillers. So you, you'll never be as, you know up to speed as they are, um, and they and they and they're likely to pick twists and mile away and so on and so forth and that's every year that goes by books like gone girl seem don't seem dated but are are probably less effective as psychological thrillers because everyone after them was writing the false journal was writing you know the flip um you know on the, the, the the sudden reversal of of who's the evil one and and also everyone's writing domestic um, thrillers, writing about husband and wives and tensions and marriages and stuff like that. And, and all this sort of started, um, in my view, started with um, authors like Gillian Flynn. So when I say Gone Girl, I think everyone should read that. Well, I haven't read it in about eight years. So, <laughs> um, and, you know, it could have, it's, it's one of those things. I don't, these books I, I just refuse to go back to. Um, and one of them, another one's Cat's Cradle, which isn't a thriller by Kurt Vonnegut, but I, I I'm so scared of reading it again because I loved it so much. Um, and a lot of Cormac McCarthy's work is the same. I, I'll never revisit it because um, I'm a different person now and, you know, I've got so much more experience reading books that it might have changed, you know, my view of that that particular book. Yeah. Um, Interesting that you mentioned Cormac McCarthy. So just uh, just when I became a new father for the first time, I reread The Road and actually found it way more impactful than I did when I read it when I wasn't a father. Um, just because all the emotions and all the themes hit home so much harder because you understand it so much better. So and it and it dates really well. So um yeah it's interesting well, like I just might, just mentioning that particular re- one. I might revisit McCarthy um at some stage. Because I was so young and angry, and you know, in my early twenties when I read his stuff, that it, the, the context of it is probably a lot different now. Certainly, a book like The Road, you know, um, I'm pretty sure he's got he's got kids, um, and so yeah, he he would be writing probably from that mm. place as well as a, as a father, which would make it a bit different. Um, anyway, yeah, so other books I would say, I mean, I'm reading Ian Ryan's book, The Spiral, which is great at the moment, but. Books like that are hard to recommend because I the books I love, but they, they can be polarizing. Um, because when you go into a book and you expect a certain thing and it's different, and it doesn't work. Another book that reminds me of the spiral was um, uh, I'm thinking of ending things um, by Ian someone else, not Ian Ryan, Ian Reed maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm actually googling it right now. Uh, it was by Ian Reed. Um, which is another one that I think is so inventive and so interesting, and it's a psychological thriller. But it's um, it is a real challenge for lots of readers, uh, and I kind of like weird books. So weird psychological thrillers are right in my weird wheelhouse. Um, but yeah, I think to be honest with you, most of the readers that come across psychological thrillers have read a little bit of crime, detective fiction, and stuff. So Shutter Island is, if you haven't seen the movie anyway. Although you could just watch the movie, which is pretty, which remains pretty, pretty accurate and true to the to the original. Mm. Um, 
but that's a that's a gateway psychological thrill, I think, because it shows you the potential of, of the genre, but in a way where you, you can read the story largely as a as a sort of crime narrative or, or a mystery narrative, and then you realize you're deep, deep, deep into a psychological thriller. Yeah. Um, and so I guess yeah, I was just gonna say changing pace a little bit. Um you're obviously quite widely read what about just other books that have really struck home in the last couple of years um in any genre that you would say um that you've recommended to a bunch of friends yeah i would say the work of um laura elizabeth wallet is um yeah she's one of my favorite australian authors she just is writes characters better than anyone certainly in um, she's borderline crime fiction. The last couple of books have been pretty close to what you call crime, but so character-driven. Um, and she's a real writer's writer. So if you are interested in developing your craft, she's a good one to read because she's she's a brilliant um, writer at a sentence level. Her prose is pretty pretty crisp. Uh, Robbie Arnott's books are great. Um, again, not crime, not genre, but... Um, a bit weird, you know. Robbie's a little bit. He probably won't mind me saying because we're, we're good friends, but he's a bit of a bit of a weird Tasmanian, you know. And Tasmanians <laughs> are a lot like Kiwis. Um, no, but seriously, he he was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin with Rain here, and, and longlisted with uh, his first book, Flames. And Flames, when we're talking about genre, uh, you know, he, he writes that book so that every chapter is essentially. Uh, representative of a different genre or style of fiction. Mm, interesting. And that's, yeah, it's just the effect is pretty intoxicating. He, he, it's so clever and, and so brilliant, and it's all sort of um, tied together. It's almost like they're almost like short stories, but they're really all part of one narrative. But there's so many funny asides, and it's just, uh, yeah, it's just so, so brilliantly. Um, Weird, I suppose you'd, you'd say. Uh, what else have we been reading? Not much, to be honest. I've got a little baby at home. I read George Saunders' A Swimming in a Pond in the Rain. Again, a craft book. Um, mm. It's about Russian literature and short stories, but in a, told in a really compelling way. And it's sort of like a lesson. Um, so each, I think there's seven short stories and from you know the Russian greats. And he goes through, in the first short story, for instance, you read a page of the short story, then he explains to you what happens and why it's significant and so on and so forth. Um, and so that's a great craft book. I read that recently. Um, but, yeah, I, th- I reckon, to be honest with you, I haven't read enough books to say with any conviction they're great because anything, any time to steal away and read uh, feel, <laughs> feels like a real special moment <laughs> yeah. to myself. Oh, and you know, yeah. I mean, it's I'm I'm similar, and it's like there's so many incredible writers out there now, and like I would I would kind of I guess turn myself a a bit of a book nerd, and still like very frequently people would be like, oh, have you read this book? It's really famous. And I'm like, I have never heard of that before, <laughs> and I've never heard of the author, and I'm constantly, um, just you know, jumping and going, well, this is something new that maybe millions of people have loved, but to me it's fresh and exciting. And um, that's the great thing about living in the world we are now. There's so much out there. It's just really hard to figure out what you're going to read. And that's part of the reason why I started this podcast is to just 
you know, people who read a lot, when something really jumps out at them, it's great to get that recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny though. You know, you say that and I've, I've tried to give up feeling guilty about a lot of things. Um, I think firstly feeling guilty about not writing, but also feeling guilty about not reading, mm. um, you know, because like I feel guilty about not reading even though I'm writing and vice versa. You know, I feel guilty about not writing even though I've been reading a lot. And um, But it's the same with, you know, there's some like very best friends I haven't read their books yet. Mm. When I say very best, I mean um, closest literary sort of, friends i haven't even got round to reading their books um and i feel tremendous guilt about that and but it's the same with like you know not reading books on shortlists or whatever you know like like i I just feel like certainly if there's a book everyone's talking about i feel like i'm i'm not a good reader if i've missed it but I'm, i'm getting over these things and you know the pile to be read just grows and grows and grows and grows. And now what I do is I just go through and go, cool, I'll probably never read that and, <laughs> and go put it on the shelf <laughs> and, and forget about it. Um, but I think it's pretty healthy to, um, you know, to know that you can prioritise your reading. And also, like, I've also begun to just go, just look at a book and, and go, I'm, I'm going to read you right now. Even if I'm in the middle of the book, if I've, if I'm in a bit of a slump or if I just want to treat myself, I'll just go pick up um, a book I really want to read. And and I talk about this like it's, you know, like it's a real job to read. But what people tend to forget, um, the part of the part of your job as an author, uh, well, certainly if you want to keep your publicist on your side, is to um, whenever you do events, it's it's polite to read the other author's books. But but often I'll have to read books if I'm launching a launching a book or if I'm asked to blurb for a for a cover or whatever, and so you do find you read for work as an author, um, and you, you kind of have to. Uh, and so when I talk about going, I'm going to pick that one up, read, and listeners might be thinking, why didn't you just read that one first? It's because it's sort of like my treat, you know. <laughs> like yeah. um, there are there are so many books I have to read for work. Um, and I end up usually loving them, but um, there's, you know, the Taylor Jenkins Reid book, Malibu Rising. I loved her last two books so much that I went out and bought that and I go, I'm going to read this today. And then I looked at what I had to read first and it's still just sitting there. And as we speak, I'm looking at it right now thinking I'm just going to pick this up next instead. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, you know, it's, so it's if- a funny complaint to have, but it's, it's like, it's, it's just that guilt thing. You know? I'm just trying to get over that, that sense of guilt. So if people want to uh, put your your books on their to-be-read pile and then feel guilty about not reading them, what's uh, what's the best place to, I guess, find you and, and follow what you do? Um, well, I am on Instagram and Twitter um, and Facebook, although um, I wouldn't follow me there because it's very little activity, but um yeah on twitter it's just at jp pomari uh likewise instagram um at jp pomari uh, my website again gets very few updates but that's jppomari.com uh so yeah you can get in touch that way or find out about upcoming events and books and things 
Unreal. And I have to uh, like just to to roll roll call the names. Um, call me Evie in the clearing. Um, the last guests and tell me lies. That is it attend, intentional on your part to have three word titles for all of your books. Uh, yes. <laughs> I had this thing, you know, I had this thing in my head after Call Me Evie. I thought it'd be fun or funny. And, and this is so much of how I approach writing um, is just entertaining myself. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought it'd be cool if you, if I could write books in a way that if you lined up all the titles, it would it'd, it'd be a sentence. Um, and it kind of worked. Call Me Evie and the Clearing kind of, you know. Yeah, you could make sense. But then, yeah, but then tell me lies. And so I thought, oh, well, maybe like there's a way. Um, what's it called when you jumble all the letters up? You yeah, know, like an anagram kind of thing. Yeah, there's a way to decipher it. So it will spell something else. And I haven't really made progress on that front. <laughs> um, but but you, you'll notice they're all, um, well, well, there was in the clearing, call me Evie, um, and we're, we're four syllables each and then um tell me lies in the last guess of three and so i don't know what, what we'll do next but i kind of like uh symmetry as well mm. um and when i talk about these funny weird little rules that i do you know like for readers of the last guess um there's all sorts of little easter eggs and and things in there that are just for me that even my editors usually don't pick up on um, and so there's lots of lyrics to a certain song throughout that novel. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> and um, only one person's <laughs> identified this. And it's really obvious for me, but um, that's because I wrote it and it's, it's, you know, it's sort of deliberate. But it's just stuff like that I find that it's kind of fun. And the titles are, uh, are definitely a part of that. It's, um, I don't think I'll go away from three-word titles unless it really becomes really forced and, and silly. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of fun, this has been a lot of fun. So thank you, uh, JP. I'll just sign off now. And I just really, if anyone wants to go and, and check out JP's work, please do check him out. The, um, the latest, The Last Guest is a really, really great read. It grabs you from the first couple of pages. So um, thanks for uh, writing it and thanks for catching up. No worries. Thanks so much for having me on, Tim. It's been, it's been a blast. Hi, this is Tim. I just wanted to say thanks so much for listening. Also, a massive thanks to Johnny Hawken for the intro and outro music, Sarah Bervenage for the podcast artwork, and the authors and publishers who make this show possible. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice, give us a shout-out on social media, or leave a review on iTunes. If you'd like to reach out to me personally to say hi, you'll find me on Instagram and Twitter at Tim underscore Hawken. That's at T-I-M underscore H-A-W-K-E-N. Or you can even head to timhawken.com and get a free copy of the first book in my Hellbound trilogy by signing up to my newsletter. For a roundup of all the episodes and recommendations, you can also head to timhawken.com forward slash genre wars. Thanks again for listening and happy reading.
Need some comfort. 